If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Gospel of John, chapter 14, we'll be reading verses 1 through 18. John 14, 1 through 18. Would you give ear to the reading of God's Word? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father, and the Father in me? The word that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And wherever you ask, whatever you ask in my name, I will do that, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, for whom the Father cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. May he out, may, we, may the Father offer his, I don't know where I'm at this morning. You know, just hang on a minute. Let us pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come before you to learn from you. We come because we know how needy we are. It's impossible for us to come into your presence on our own. You have been so gracious to provide us with everything we need to know you. You give us your word to make, wise, make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You have told us all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to understand your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. On this Communion Sunday, we return to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. As we study from John's writings, we learn that the plan of John's Gospel is very much a beautiful account of God's work on behalf of mankind. We see Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory. This helps us to appreciate his coming into our world 
and sharing his love for us. He came with the explicit purpose of saving his people from their sins and from eternal death. In his earthly ministry, he makes himself known to more and more people. At the same time, we see him rejected in Galilee and Judea. To our amazement, he doesn't call fire down on their heads. Instead, he turns to them in tenderness to appeal to all sinners so they may hear and believe the truth he brought. In the gospel, he calls them to come by faith and believe his words. What is the result in many? This is one of the really interesting things to me. It's opposition and bitter resistance. Through mighty deeds and wonders, he manifested himself as the clear Messiah. The Gentiles seek him by grace, while the Jews who have seen his miracles, both his words and deeds, question him. They see him displaying his character of love and power, and they're repulsed by it. Don't let that be you. You can do better. Open your heart and place your hope, place your trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. For as we saw in the last communion we have, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one coming to the Father except through him. He alone can save your soul. So, he looks to the disciples carefully, teaching them in the upper room and right before his time on the cross when he commits them to his Father's care. Then in his death on the cross, he overcomes the world, and through his resurrection, he reveals the true meaning of the cross. The meaning of his work on the cross was to show men they must place their hope, their trust, in him and in him alone. Therefore, men must understand they're absolutely dependent upon Christ for everything in their life. Their knowledge of redemptive truth and also for the spark, the spark that comes alive in their hearts and gives life to their souls. This brings their souls to life and to knowledge. This makes it clear. No one can come to the God the Father but through Jesus Christ, his Son. William Henderson, a New Testament scholar who was a professor at Reform Seminary in Mississippi, says... With Christ removed, there can be no redemptive truth, no everlasting life, hence, no way to the Father. You can't come to him without Jesus Christ. This is the perfect agreement, in perfect agreement with Luke when he speaks in Acts 4.12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You should be able to see through this that the absoluteness of Christian Christian religion makes it extremely important that we understand where the revelation began. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He He was in the beginning with God. This revelation was the beginning of all things. We come now to the Gospel of John 14, verses 7 7 through 11, and we learn about the Father revealed. First, we answer the question, how can you know the Father? 
Second, we look to see who is the revelation of God. Third, we examine why do you not believe. Fourth, we would consider what you must believe. Jesus begins here with the thought of knowing the Father. Now that's a very important point. You really need to know the Father. We will see that to know Jesus is life itself. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says in verse 7, If you had not known, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. In this first phrase, he says, if you had known me. We find in the original Greek that this implies that that they didn't really know him. The disciples didn't really understand him yet. Now, you understand they did know him as a person and a friend. They had left all to follow him. They had spent three years as his disciples. They sat under his teaching. They observed the miracles he did. Jesus is not saying they were totally ignorant of him. What he means is that there were some very important things about him they still did not understand. These things were things that were very much a part of who he really was. They were things that were essential to his being. This also implies that they didn't know the Father in a deep spiritual way. In other words, they didn't really know the God they claimed to worship. The real meaning here is that Jesus came into this world as the revelation of God the Father. It is Christ, the only begotten God-man, who can show who and what the Father really is. Apart from the revelation of Jesus... Any knowledge of the Father is false. The time from Jesus' arrest to his resurrection was to show that his disciples misunderstood the significance of the cross. Their failure is made clear in their running away at his arrest. They couldn't summon the courage to stand with him in his hour of trial. This was clear evidence of their ignorance of what he came to do and who he was. They truly didn't know him. With this all said, Jesus wants them to know that things are about to change. Verse 7 ends with these words, And from now on you know him and have seen him. With these words he's saying there will be new circumstances. Don't take this to mean there will be an immediate and quick change. That's not what he's talking about. He's pointing to the present events as critical ones. As he was telling them all of this, what was happening? The betrayer was coming. Judas was leading them to him. That means the events and actions that will make known the salvation of God's people are at hand. We can see that it was several weeks away before the disciples would fully comprehend all of this. But right now, now they, are, they were living in the midst of the gospel's fulfillment of its purpose. You know, I've often thought, boy, I would have loved to have been there in that time, but I'm not sure now if I studied this more. 
you talk about having some real struggles. These men were under real stress. All that was going on represented on this table the events that happened then. This table is a representation of what God did for you in saving your soul. His perfect life, atoning death, and resurrection victory come to their fulfillment right now. Right in this period of time. This was also making clear to the disciples a deeper and more genuine knowledge of God. Through Christ's saving works, they would come to know the Father as they had never known him before. As you study and understand what Jesus did on the cross, you will come in humility to this table. Literal humility. You'll want to come on your knees. You will also grow. You will grow in your understanding of all God did for you through his son, Jesus Christ, and through his sacrifice on the cross. These are things you need to get down in your heart and you need to rest upon them for your religion, for your spiritual being, because this is where it began. Jesus says, you know him. Notice this goes far beyond anything the people of the Old Testament ever claimed. I found this to be really interesting. You might find the occasional mention that people knew God, but that would be the exception throughout the Old Testament. Mostly, when people spoke of knowing God in the Old Testament, it was their way of looking forward and hoping to know him. C.H. Dodd, who is a Welch New Testament scholar, says this, I cannot discover a place where a prophet expressly says that he knows God. Again, while God's knowledge of Israel is confidently proclaimed by the prophets, they rarely affirm that Israel knows God. Christ, through his incarnate life in the New Testament, brings to mankind, especially those who believe, he brings them something new, something marvelous in religious experience. That's the real knowledge of God. Here on this table is a picture of the works Christ performed to open this knowledge in your heart. This verse ends with these words, and you have seen him. This was something that was new and very different. This would have been a staggering statement in the Old Testament. The Greeks consider their gods to be invisible. The Jews of the Old Testament thought, if you saw God, you'd die. The thought to see God was a sin. What Jesus was doing in giving those who believed in him by faith an intimacy with God. Do you realize that through Christ you have great intimacy with the Father? Jesus is making it clear that he came into this world to reveal the Father. Here on this table is the revelation of God as the redeemer of his people. At this point, we come to see who is the revelation of God. Verses 8 and 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, Show us the Father? What we see in this is that Thomas's question in verse 5 about the way 
shines light on the relationship of the follower of Jesus to God. This is followed by Philip's request, Lord, show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. The disciples would have all been familiar with, with God appearing in visions to people in the Old Testament. It seems that Philip believed Jesus could bring about such a vision. If he did bring such a vision, then everything would be clear to them, or as he says, would be sufficient. In feeding the 5,000, Philip was asked how much it would take to feed the masses. He responded by saying 200 denarii would, would not feed such a crowd. Jesus proceeded with much less than 200 denarii to feed this crowd. He did it with five loaves and two fishes from a small boy's lunch and had a lot of leftovers. Philip saw that miracle. He should have seen a lot about Jesus' relationship with the Father. He and the other disciples failed. They literally failed to understand the meaning of this great miracle. And if Philip had seen a vision of the Father, he probably wouldn't have accepted it until he had the Holy Spirit in his heart. You remember the, the, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. All of the miracles they saw. He parted the Red Sea, destroyed the Egyptian pursuers, and came and rested on the mountaintop himself. And what'd they say? Two weeks later, they're building an idol and calling it their God. Without the faith the Holy Spirit plants in the heart, Jesus cannot be seen as one with the Father. Remember the faith that Jesus was looking for and still is looking for is not a faith that is dependent on vision. Christianity is a religion of the, the ear, not the eye. We're called to hear and believe. Faith comes by hearing, not by sight. The great truth that Jesus has preached throughout his earthly ministry, he now puts it into one sentence. He who has seen me has seen the Father. All the disciples had been with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. Jesus found Philip. He was the fifth man called by Jesus. He was from Bethsaida in Galilee, the hometown of Peter and Andrew. This is a real situation. Philip had heard Jesus teaching, saw the way he lived, and the wonderful signs he did. Yet, Jesus still says to him, you have not known me. When Philip goes on to ask, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us, you would think with all of the advantages Philip had had in being so close to Jesus, he would have known more. One of the great purposes of Jesus coming into the world was to show men God. To give them a clear picture of what the Father in heaven was like. Jesus was the incarnate God-man. In Hebrews 1.3, we learn that Jesus was the exact representation of God's presence. Throughout his ministry, he told the disciples over and over that he and the Father were one. Why did they not get it? William Henderson says, the kind of recognition with which Jesus has in mind is a spiritual one in character. It amounts to seeing by faith the Father in the Son. 
Jesus strengthens this when he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? It's clear from this that the revelation of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus calls Philip to hear his teaching and then declares that it was not self-conceived. Across John's gospel, you can see that the idea of Jesus' message was not of human origin. Verse 10, Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. John in this verse shows that he came from God. This Jesus can say, I do not speak on my own authority. He then explains that the Father lives in him. He shows the relationship between he and the Father is so close, they can't be separated. In this passage, you will see that all knowledge concerning the facts of redemption is founded on genuine Christian faith. Thus, we are given a sound foundation for a truly Christian epistemology. Now, epistemology is, is the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from just mere opinion. We all need an epistemology to be able to reason through the scripture. There is no way reason can penetrate these spiritual mysteries. Jewish monotheism, which is the belief, Jews' belief in one, only one God. But they refused. They refused to believe that the divine essence can be presented in more than one divine person. Only Christian faith can do that. We see next that Jesus turns immediately to the works that were manifested by his life. Leon Morris was an Australian theologian of the mid-20th century, and in his expository reflections on the Gospel of John, tells us about Christ's miracles. He says, as we have seen in earlier studies in this Gospel, the miracles of Jesus are often seen as signs. They are significant happenings. However, Jesus always calls them works. We seem to want to, to see them as only miracles. This serves to show that Jesus' life was a unity. You must understand, he did not do some things as God and other things as man. Leon Morris says works is used both for the miraculous and the non-miraculous. Please get this in your head. Jesus was not a split personality. His personality was one in whom Godhead and manhood were harmoniously blended. Jesus would never speak of the works he did. Instead, he spoke of the works the Father did. Jesus never would, have, would never act in isolation from the Father. Anything Jesus did, miraculous or not, had to be seen as being done by the Father. So Jesus declared, the Father who dwells in me does the works. Therefore, ask yourself, do you not believe? Why would you need to ask such a question? 
The Jews didn't make a mistake thinking that Jesus made statements like this about his life as merely moral unity or ethnical harmony. They understood. They were very clearly knew, as John 1.1 shows, that nothing less than essential equity with God was intended. That's why they got so mad at him, because they saw he was calling himself God. The ontological trinity is clearly shown in Jesus' words when he says, The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Jesus, when he speaks the Father's works by means of this speaking. In other words, he speaks the Father's works. What he speaks is done. Therefore, every word of Jesus is a work of the Father. Please understand, this does not make the Father a ventriloquist speaking through his dummy. No, the Son speaks the mind of the Father because what was on his mind was also on the Father's mind. It's in the same, that same sense so that Jesus in speaking, the Father's redemptive acts are being accomplished. Understand the works of the Father are not limited to the words of Jesus. They also include his miracles and signs. Such works are to show the glory of God in the ministry of Jesus. Do you not believe this? I hope you do. I hope you do, for without belief and faith, you're going to have absolutely nothing. The table before you this morning is filled with the evidence of the unity and harmony of God the Father and God the Son as it is displayed for us by God the Holy Spirit. Philip has seen the way Jesus lived his life. He has been witness to the wonders Jesus has performed. Knowing this about all of his disciples, what does he ask Philip? Verse 11a. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. This applies to all of the disciples because he makes the imperative believe plural in form. What does Jesus follow this with? Verse 11b. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Notice the words believe me for. It is at this point that we have to stop and be very, very careful. Some in the modern day church have come to the use to use this to say we need to forget all the doctrinal stuff that weighs us down, that weighs our souls down. Just throw out that doctrine and get rid of it. They want you to believe that we need nothing but to know the name of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Jesus is trying to get Philip to see, that there is more than just knowing his name and being his friend. We know that simple trust is important. Jesus wanted his disciples to have faith, but faith is never empty. Please understand that. It's never empty. It's full of the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to do. To throw that away would be to destroy the gospel and the plan of salvation. Without the knowledge, there could be no way, no truth, and no life. The believer must have faith in the God who has revealed himself in Jesus. Dr. Morris says, Christianity is not a faith in faith. 
It is faith in a God, a God who has revealed himself in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father. Anything less than that is not a Christian faith. Suppose that is too difficult for you to believe. Suppose there's a stumbling block there for you. Jesus tells Philip, he can still show his faith if he will just believe the works he has seen Jesus do. Such works should prove it was more than a mere man that did them. Such works show, should show that the Father in, was dwelling in Jesus which gave him the power to do these things. So if you can believe that, how can you not believe that Jesus is worthy of your fullest trust? Look at the feeding of the 5,000. And, and remember, there's a whole lot more there than 5,000 because they didn't count women and children. They only counted the head of the household. And he took one small lunch and he blessed it and it never gave out. And when they finished, he had 12 basketfuls. Now he started with only one little basket. And now everybody's eating and he's got 12 full basketfuls of leftovers. As this chapter opens with the disciples, where the disciples are, are wavering in their faith, they're scared. I think we can all understand why. Jesus is telling them, He's about to be arrested, tried, sentenced to death, and nailed to a cross. If that doesn't take the wind out of your sails, I can't imagine what will. The day before their faith was strong, but now it's weak. It's on the verge of being lost completely. And Jesus knows. Jesus knows that what faith is in their hearts must be kept there to strengthen them, especially now with Jesus leaving them. He uses this exchange with Philip to make them think, to make them stop and think and search their hearts for that little bit of faith that they still have. They must understand that he and the Father are one. He is urging them to take him at his word. He does this because this would be the highest form of faith there is. Faith, simply put, is believing God. If, there must, if, if, if they must look to the works of Jesus and then believe he did it through his Father, wonderful. They're at the same point. What is so important for them to realize is that even though his physical presence shall be, not be, shall be withdrawn, his spiritual presence shall forever be with them because he and the Father are one. In this way, Jesus will never remain the only way to the Father. He will ever be the one through which you can come to the Father, which is what this table is showing you. It is a place where your faith can be strengthened for all who come rightly partaking. In conclusion... We must understand in this passage we come face to face with the greatest revelation we could ever have. If we don't get a good solid hold on these words that John gave us about Jesus and the Father, we will forever be lost and find ourselves in hell for eternity. This is the very heart where the gospel opens and begins to grow. If we throw away the truth that grounds this doctrine, we throw away all hope of an eternity of peace.
It is here we find the platform, the platform upon which our faith is to be anchored. The God we serve is a triune God, represented to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the Catechism says, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. We come to this table this morning. We come to remember all that God our Father has done for us. What he did in sending his Son to change the hearts of men and his Spirit to help them grow in their understanding. Please, please come to this table only. Only if you know Jesus Christ and know him and his Son and know the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've got to understand the broadness of God here. He has done everything for you. This table shows what he has done for you. The one sent by the Father and Spirit to take your sins and give you forgiveness. The one you know as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we're filled with joy as we come to your word and worship. Thank you for helping us to worship you as you have called us to. We thank you with all of our hearts for your love and wisdom. We thank you for this table you have provided to show us how much you love us. We know that the salvation of our souls comes through, through works, but not through works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This table shows us all he did and why he had to do it for us. Help us to ever keep our focus on Jesus Christ and all he did. We need you in our hearts if we are to walk with you. Fill us with your spirit and guide us in our walk. In Christ's name, amen.